Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Hey, hey, clones. Welcome back to the Daily Jungle. A big Monday after a weekend where jungle karma was freaking everywhere. Tim Layden of SI joined us. He talked about the Kentucky Derby. New York Jets cornerback Xavier Coleman shared his amazing story. And Matt Holliday worked overtime to join us after the Yankees' 18-inning win over the Cubs. Let's get at it. Let's get right to it. Alvy, do what you do. Let's start in Louisville because there's probably no better example of the jungle karma than what happened in the 103rd running of the Kentucky Derby this weekend. The biggest stage for that sport. The biggest spotlight for the owners, the trainers, the jockeys, and of course, the athletes, the animals, the horses. One of those trainers... Todd Pletcher swung through the jungle on Thursday. It was his first appearance on this show. That was Thursday. Then on Saturday, his horse, always dreaming, did this. As they come into the final furlong, looking at Lee is making a bid now. Through on the inside, up into second. Always dreaming with a two and a half length lead of 16th to go. Looking at Lee is second. Then comes Battle of Midway, Classic Empire. They're coming to the line, and the dream comes true. Always dreaming has won the Kentucky Derby. And it was looking at Lee second, followed by Battle of Midway and Classic Empire. The final time was two minutes, 3.59 seconds. Credit NBC. And one question for y'all. Do you believe now? What more proof could you possibly need? Todd Pletcher shows up. He does a great interview on Thursday, and he wins the Derby with Always Dreaming on Saturday. And remember, this is a guy who came into the Derby one for 45. One for 45. And let me sidebar on that for one minute. I could argue that it takes a hell of a trainer to go one for 45 in the Derby. And I mean that sincerely. We've had considerable success in horse racing in the past 10 years. We have never once had a horse run in the Derby. And to be honest, there's a very good chance we never will. That's how hard it is just to get to the Derby. As an example, there are tens of thousands of horses that are born every single year, but only 20 get to run in the Derby. And it's a one-off. That race is limited to only three-year-olds. So you only have one shot with each horse. So whereas Pletcher admitted on the show Thursday that he was frustrated to only have one Derby win, I'm here to tell you, going one for 45 in that race will put you in the Hall of Fame because it is that hard to win it. And I'm also here to tell you, it's much easier to win it when you have that 100-mile-per-hour gale that is the jungle karma at your back pushing you forward. Let that be a lesson to any trainer who wants to win that race. Make sure the jungle is your very last stop before you load into the gate. Ask Todd Pletcher or ask Stephen Panis, the vice president of the Jockey Club. He thumbed out the following tweet, quote, Lucky Charm. Todd Pletcher goes on the Jim Rome show pre-derby, and he secures his second Kentucky Derby winner in 48 starts. Yeah, there's a name for that, my man. It's called Jungle Karma, and it was only getting started that day because one state up in Ohio, red center fielder Billy Hamilton was raking. Remember, he was on the show last week, Friday to be exact, and just 31 hours after his jungle appearance, he absolutely goes off. And here we go. And Billy is off to the races. This could be three. This is going to be three. Hamilton, a triple to begin the game. This ball is clobbered to left center feet. Billy Hamilton up against the wall to get it. And it's a base hit by Hamilton to drive in a pair of runs. How about Billy? Here he comes. 
into second, and he's in there. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Doubled, and now he's going to steal third base, and he's in there ahead of the tag. Here's the pitch again. Mazzarocco going. Here's another hit for Hamilton. Mazzarocco turns the corner, heads the third. He is safe. Billy Hamilton, three for three in this game. Thanks to Reds Radio and Fox. Three knocks, two RBI, two runs, and a stolen base in that 14-2 beat down of the Giants. Amazing. Amazing, but not at all surprising. Not when you remember that he came in Friday and the karma was coming out his ears. But the karma still had one more stop on tour. The District, Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Semis. Caps, Penguins. Look, I was not sweating it. I'm never wrong with my NHL Stanley Cup picks. I don't plan on starting right now. However, down 2-1, going into the third period, some of you Caps honks were on edge. Some of you who took my prediction to Vegas might have been gripping, especially in an elimination game. But it was in that very moment when you were freaking out that the karma did kick in and the Caps blitzed the Penguins and they turned that third period into a straight wax job. Here comes Burakovsky looking for space. Got it through the backstrom. He scores! As Burakovsky gets it off the wall! Keeps it in for Kuznetsov. Back to Marcus and he fires a rebound. They score! They score! Evgeny Kuznetsov! The rebound carried along. Here's Ovechkin and a shot. Second he scores! Alex Ovechkin! It's 4-2 Washington! Of course he did! Karma. Jungle Karma in full force. Thanks to Caps Radio. Barry Trotz, TJ Oshie cashing in at the right time. The Caps stars finally showing up when they had to. Or should I say, the jungle karma showing up when it had to. Just like it always does. Look, ultimately, everyone gets beat at some point. Everybody loses. Except sex. It has ruined more lives, careers, and reputations. That's why sex is the undefeated, untied, heavyweight champion of the world. But there is one more thing that's almost as powerful and also unbeaten. The jungle karma. Ask Todd Pletcher, ask Billy Hamilton, ask the Washington Capitals, ask the thousands who appeared on this show and have benefited from it. What's up now, haters? What's up now, doubters? You know what? Don't sweat it. I accept your apology. No harm, no foul. Apology accepted. Stop beating yourselves up. It's not your fault. You just did not know. But now you do. Nothing can stop the karma. Nothing. I don't control it. I can't just give it to who I want to give it to. It does not discriminate. It does not lie. It's real. Disrespect it and mock it. And I can promise you, it will come back and bite you in the ass. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But it will at some point. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. It's real. And I do accept your apologies. All good. Karma. Tim Layden is my guest. Starting with the Derby, Tim, always dreaming, bobbled at the start, but then went on to win the Derby. What did you make of his performance on Saturday? Uh, you know, the, the thinking was on always dreaming that if he was at his best, um, which he, you know, he hadn't trained great um, in the week leading to the Derby, but if he was at his best, that he was probably the horse that had the best chance to, to get in front, uh, you know, like American Pharaoh did in the, in the Belmont and the Preakness, and get in front and stay there. And that's exactly what happened. He was one of the only horses in the field that came under the wire with no mud on him, which 
you know, that means he was there was nobody in front of him the whole way. Tim Lane joining us. You know, Tim, you mentioned that he didn't train great. A week and a half before the Derby, Todd Pletcher said that Always Dreaming was, quote, trying to run the Kentucky Derby at 545 on Wednesday morning. What did he mean by that? And then how did he go about addressing that? Yeah, the way the way Pletcher put it was he he was ready to run the Derby upon arrival. You know, he uh, you know, he was he was uh, flown in from Florida. And the first time they put him on the track, he was basically like, OK, let's put me in the starting gate. Let's go. And, um, you know, just like with a human being, if you, you know, if you've got to run a marathon and you're going out trying to run a marathon every morning, you're not exactly going to be ready when you get to Boston or New York. So they, they just put some different training reins on them. They call them draw reins, not to get too horsey about it, but they basically make, they let the exercise rider in the morning control the horse a little better and, and not let him take off and, and use all his energy in the, in the seven or eight or ten days leading up to the race so he's more ready to go when they when they put him in the starting gate, and it's pretty rare. I mean, most people I talk to can't remember a you know, really big-time racehorse that, that trained in those kind of reins, but it worked for Always Dreaming, uh, you know, for, for, um, and they're going to put him on him in, in Baltimore, too. You know, and it speaks to the adjustment that Todd Pletcher made. You know, one of the storylines, Tim laid my guest, one of the storylines, Tim, coming in was that there was not that one horse that had separated itself from the pack. There was not that one horse that was the standout who had emerged. Now that Always Dreaming is one, has that story changed? I mean, was that just a good run by a good horse, or might that have been the emergence of a star? You know, that's that's the $64,000 question. I mean, well, I think... I mean, this horse that won the Florida Derby, and, and he's won three straight races. If if he hadn't had problems training, maybe we would have been looking at him as that as that as that American Pharaoh, that California Chrome, that horse that, that people can get behind. So, you know, I think certainly, you know, he, if he can repeat this performance in the Preakness, then he's that guy. And you know, I saw some early odds right now, and he's you know almost even money in the Preakness, and it'll probably be shorter than that when they run it. So. And he was the favorite in the Derby. So if there is that horse, it's him. And, and everybody else has came in with, with uh, problems on their resumes and bad races here and there or injuries. And, you know, now they kind of all fall aside, except the horse called Classic Empire, who was the best two-year-old last year. And he just got clobbered coming out of the starting gate in the Derby. So he's going to come back in the Preakness and hope for a, a clean trip and, and maybe take a shot at, at always dreaming. Clones, I have to talk to you for a moment about Ferguson. Ferguson is the nation's largest distributor of plumbing products, but their playbook goes deeper than plumbing. Pro contractors, know to depend on Ferguson for the best in waterworks, HVAC, and facilities maintenance products in the game. Ferguson has over 20,000 knowledgeable associates always working for you. Combine that with Ferguson's 1,400 locations and 24-7 online ordering, and you will always have the home team advantage. See why the pros pick Ferguson at ferguson.com today. That's Ferguson. Now it's back to the Daily Jungle. Tim Layden, my guest. Tim, before you go, let me ask you about an excellent piece that you wrote about Kurt Tong, who passed away in January. Who was Kurt Tong, and what kind of an impact did he have on you? Kurt Tong was, uh, he was my college basketball coach, and uh, you know, there was a, a dual storyline there. He was also one of the most influential people in, in Greg Popovich's life. He was uh, the athletic director at Pomona Pitzer in Southern California when, uh, when, when Popovich was the coach there, and he was a very influential older coach who had a lot of, taught Popovich a lot of things that you see in him now about not believing too much of what you read that's positive or negative. And, and, and it, it, Coach Tong was a guy who put me on his team one year, 
and he cut me the next year because I wasn't good enough. But, you know, like every athlete who's ever been cut, I thought I was good enough. And I carried that for 20 years that I wasn't on that team for another couple of years and then saw Coach Tong in a Final Four, and he introduced me to all these A-list coaches as one of his former players. And it just validated for me that I was a former player and showed me how much of an influence a coach can have on you. And when I talked to Pop, I learned that he had the same kind of influence on him, so it sort of brought the whole circle around for me. It's a great story. And the fact that you spoke with Pop, the fact that he spoke with you for that piece, what does that tell you about how he felt about Tong and the relationship the two of them had? Yeah, because, you know, Jim Pop never talks. And when he does talk to media, he, he basically, I mean, he sees the, the silliness in what we do sometimes, and he's not interested in participating. And when I reached out to the Spurs and told them that, that Kurt Tong had passed away, and, of course, Pop already knew that, you know, they immediately came back and said, yeah, he'd love to talk to you. And we got on the phone, and he was, you know, he kind of gave me a few pat answers at first. And then I said, look, I know this guy meant a lot to you. How did he influence your life? And he said to me, we're trying to go deep here, right? And I said, well, you wanna, do you want to go halfway about a guy that meant that much to you? And he said, no, let's, let's go for it. And then he was really open and honest with me. And I think it, 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 well, that wasn't about me. It was about how much Kurt Tong meant to, meant to Pop. And it, and it meant a lot to me that he was willing to share that stuff. Sure. You know, and then, Tim, the fact that Pop told you how much he enjoyed his time coaching small-time college basketball, I mean, it's one of those things that a lot of coaches say, and I don't know how much they mean, or they might think about it as – they get nostalgic thinking about the old days, but not really mean it. But with Pop, you think that he really did mean that. I mean, how much did he like coaching at Pomona Pitzer, and what did he like about that? You know, I think what he said to me that he liked the most about when his time there was the daily interaction he would have with students and coaches of other sports and professors and deans and the president of the college. You know, it's something that something you get at a small D3 school, which, you know, I went to Williams College, which is where Tong coached me, and, you know, that's the kind of thing you get in that environment. It's really, I think, Popovich, who's, he's not a one-dimensional guy, he's a guy who thinks about the world around him, and he really loved that, and, you know, he said to me, I, I enjoyed it then, I missed it when I left, and I, and I miss it today, um, because his job now pays him a lot of money and gets him a lot of publicity that he doesn't really care about, and, and he doesn't have that kind of interaction with people that have different interests in life than he does. And, you know, he's the kind of guy that I wouldn't be surprised that when he, if, when he leaves coaching at the NBA, he's going to go someplace where his life is a lot more diverse. I don't think you're going to see him going to broadcasting or, or the front office. Tim, speaking of going deep, one last thought. Let me shift to the marathon very quickly while I have you. Friday night, Iliad Kipchoge along with a number of other runners, attempted to break the two-hour barrier for the marathon, and he ran it in two hours, 25 seconds, which is two and a half minutes faster than the world record, but it didn't count because there were pace runners entering mid-race. There were drinks delivered via moped. What was your reaction to the event and to the time that he ran? He's the best marathoner in history, and he's an amazing athlete, and nothing but big respect for him, for Kipchoge. But the whole thing was just, uh, it was just a publicity stunt by Nike to sell shoes and t-shirts and, and, uh, and, and, and dry fit gear and hats. And, and I'm sure the scientists were sincere about it, but I'm, I'm, my personal view of the sports world is I like games more than I like records. I don't really care. Um, I don't care about the final time of the 100 meters if Usain Bolt is running. I don't really care how many points Steph Curry or Durant scores. If, if I can just watch the offense run and watch them win the game. You know, I mean, I like competition, and I'd like to see – I would like to have seen Kipchoge take a shot at the world record, 
by going to a great marathon and just going for it in the marathon itself. And uh, I know some people were into it, and, and, and they're entitled to feel that way. I, I just didn't love it. I felt like I was watching a commercial. I think it's all fair. I really do. And it kind of takes the air out of my last question, but does it feel like the two-hour barrier is that much closer to being broken? And if so, when might that happen, if ever? Uh, it's not any closer because it's it, it's still the same guys, and I still think we're years and years away from it. It's taken a long time to get down to 202.57 where we are now, and I just it's going to be hard to do in a real race, which is the only time it should be done. And I... I think we're years and years away. I think we're, you know, a generation away from seeing a two-hour marathon. And I, I'm kind of glad it wasn't done in this environment because then people could say the barrier was broken. And I, I, it would have been disappointing to me, but I, I, I'd i rather see a race. And I think if it's done in a race, it's going to be many years away. I mean, clearly the inmates are running that Mets asylum. And pitcher Matt Harvey has got to pull his head out of his backside before he wrecks what's left of his career. I'm talking about the Mets suspending him for three games without pay Saturday. Again, the team is not saying why they did it, but a source told ESPN it's because he didn't show up to the ballpark on Saturday. Fox Sports had that story first, and they said that a source close to Harvey said that he had a migraine and that there were possible communication issues with the team. (laughs) Communication issues. What? Like, he failed to communicate why he failed to show up for work on Saturday? Those types of communication issues? Either way, manager Terry Collins thought that that excuse was pretty lame. There were rules here that weren't adhered to, and we took a stance. Um, So hopefully it gets behind us, and we can move forward and go back playing the way we've been the last week. takes a little steam away, and uh, I don't think there's any doubt that all of a sudden, there was something that, you know, you guys lost that, lost that focus a little bit, and uh, it certainly didn't help us. Let me translate that for you. I'm pissed, and so are his teammates. Rest assured, given how banged up that rotation is right now, if they're suspending this guy for three days without pay, not showing up for work on Saturday cannot be the only stupid thing he's done. That's the only transgression that we know about. And I'm sure there's a lot more where that came from. And by the way, that in and of itself to me is a suspendable offense. You have a headache. (laughs) You have a headache. Great. Do what everybody else does who gets a headache. Hit it with a few Advil and get your ass back to work. And if you truly were incapacitated by that headache... You know, oh, it's not a headache, it's a migraine. I used to get migraines quite a bit. I know what that's about. It's not a lot of fun. You know what you do? You pick up the phone, you lob the team a call, and say you're not coming in. It takes maybe 30 seconds. In the very least, you shoot them a text. That takes maybe three seconds. But most of all, you know what you do? You take some aspirin and you go to work. But not doing any of the above means either you're dead or you're one of the most unprofessional guys ever. And considering they just suspended you, I know you're not dead. This guy needs to wake up. And if a suspension like that does not shake him up, nothing will. Fact of the matter is, he's not nearly the guy he was only a few years back. Not after coming off a Tommy John surgery, and not after surgery for a thoracic outlet syndrome. And he's already got a rep around Major League Baseball for not working hard enough and not caring nearly enough. 
I mean, nobody would ever confuse Matt Harvey when it comes to professionalism and preparation and work ethic and having a will to prepare with Clayton Kershaw. And now with this suspension, that rep takes a beating all over again. One thing to struggle because of injuries, entirely another to just not give a damn and not do the work. The work that most other guys do. Certainly the work that makes good pitchers great and great pitchers Hall of Famers. I mean, literally, this guy's career is essentially in jeopardy right now, and either he doesn't know or he just doesn't care. And he clearly doesn't get it. And if, he, if he's taking days off without calling anybody, if this guy just bothers or doesn't bother to even show up to work without even telling the team and they can't find him, if I'm the Mets, I'm looking to move this guy as soon as I can. He's a free agent to be in 2018. You know he's not going to stay there then. And if this is the path he's on right now, you can only imagine how bad it'll be by the time 2018 rolls around. He clearly does not want to be there right now, so get him the hell out of there. I'd start shopping him right now. And the Mets themselves, they're not without blame either. In fact, they're a train wreck. The team is letting guys like Noah Syndergaard and Ioannis Cespedes diagnose themselves, making existing injuries even worse than they already are, and they're having stars not even bother to show up for work or call anybody when it happens. So they're a joke too. This was a team that was supposed to make a run this year. A team that everybody was going to look at with respect and instead all of baseball is laughing at them right now. Oh, and a memo to Harvey. Almost as bad as not showing and not calling is filing a grievance against the team for suspending you after you failed to show up for work. It is weak. And the fact that you're not owning it is only making it worse in your own clubhouse, worse with management, and to anybody else who might consider making a deal for you or signing you as a free agent. Again, this guy, literally, his career could be in jeopardy, and he either doesn't know or doesn't care, and I think I'm safe in assuming it's both. And believe me, if teammates are coming out and saying for the record that he let them down, you know it's bad. Jose Reyes said it. That he let us down and we're disappointed in him. Oh yeah, I me. Mean, we disappointed. I mean, you know, we have to understand we are employee. I mean, you have to come to your job every day, and you know, we kind of hang. I mean, you know, he's VP of the ball club, and where we need to go, and you know, it's kind of disappointing. If Jose Reyes is disappointed in you, you know you've made a mistake. It's not exactly David Wright saying, hey, we got to be better than that. That's Jose Reyes. Not exactly a sparkling reputation of his own. And he let Jose Reyes down. Harvey's got to wake the hell up. The Mets really are a laughingstock and a train wreck right now. So you can take any part of that that you want. 1-800-636-8686. And I'm getting some reaction to Stephen Hayward. Hey, look, this is the thing. This is the run you risk. And this is the chance you take when you make that phone call. It might not go well. This show's a little bit different in that regard. It's a tough show in that regard. If you make a call and you implode on the phone lines, they're coming for you. Now, on the other hand, if you handle your business, you get a golden ticket, and then you get to compete with the best of the best. One of the best of the best, Vic and NoCal. He won a smack off. He tweets, and I quote, Wah! I have to drive a truck. Wah! Hey, Steve. Shut up. You make in one week what I make in a decade. Sign Scott's service. You gonna throw that card again, Vic?
I'm working with my boss, Cam, and I'm, I've been out of baseball since 04 with the Diamondbacks. And I'm sitting there, and I'm painting this stain. And when you was talking about Will of Fortune, because I'm a funny guy. You can ask Larkin, Mike Sweeney, any of the guys I played with. When you said that, I dropped the damn brush, and there's stain all over the place. Again, I have no idea why you're constantly coming for this guy, much less almost 10 years after he made that call. Former MLBer Scott Service called the listen line in 2009 and talked about how he was painting a house. What would you expect a guy like that not to do anything with the rest of his life? Again, that's his job. That's what he chose to do. I don't even know what he's doing right now, but why is that an issue? I mean, you kill guys when they do nothing, and then you kill guys when they do something. Let's go to Hayward, California. Stephen Hayward. Steve, what's going on? How are you? Uh, Fine, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I just... Oh, Matt Harvey got... Uh, suspended for three days. Wah. And now he's filing a grievance. Oh, give me a break, Jim. These guys make more money in one day than I make in a year. I drive trucks cross-country. And they fly first class. They stay in five-star hotels. They get, what, three, $400 a day meal money? Wah! Give me a freaking break. Hey, Steve, you forgot one thing. If you did that in your job, you'd get your ass fired, right? Wah! Yeah, I feel you, Steve. Yeah, I get it. And I think you speak for essentially the entire country. I understand that. One problem. You, me, and the rest of the country cannot do what this guy can do. Matt Holiday joins us. Matt, good afternoon. How are you? What's up, Jim? My man, I know how hard you work for this, Matt. It's only going to be a couple of minutes, but I really appreciate you for doing it. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Sorry about this. Not at all, man. It's been a bit of a long night. Uh, I'll say it was a long night. Like I said, you went way beyond the call of duty. So tell me about last night. You're coming off a game where you went two for four. The team won an 18 at Wrigley to beat the Cubs. What was last night and into the morning like for you and for the team? Well, obviously, if you're going to get – if you have to play for – you know, six hours and, and get in at six in the morning, you may as well win, right? So thankfully, uh, we were able to win, and uh, and that makes it feel a little bit better when you land at, at six o'clock in the morning and, and get to the hotel and and uh, wake up at two in the afternoon and have to play again. But uh, it was good. You know, obviously, you never expect or all this Chapman to blow a, a three-run lead. It doesn't happen very often and uh, at all, really, uh, that I know of. And so, um, surprising a little bit. The game could have been over at a, at a reasonable time, uh, but uh, you know we uh, we fought back and, and able to get the win and, and get a sweep in Chicago, which uh, is tough to do. And so we uh, we're feeling pretty good about how we're playing, and, and uh, you know we uh, try to roll it back out there tonight, a little extra coffee, and, and get after it. New York Yankee Matt Holiday, my guest. Matt, you're swinging a hot bat. You're top ten in the American League in OPS and slugging percentage. What's the transition to the American like uh, league been like for you? Well, it's it's uh, it's been. I think it's a little easier nowadays. You know, I think obviously we play a lot of interleague games, and and so you have some familiarity with with guys around the league, and and uh, there's so much advanced scouting, and and we have iPads that they give us, and and we have they have all the pitching on there, and so we have opportunities uh, that maybe you didn't have in the past when you make league transitions, and, and so I feel like it's gone pretty smooth. Obviously, there's guys that you're going to run into that the first time through, uh, you're going to have to kind of see their pitches and, and see their tendencies and try to adjust to that. Um, but for the most part, it's been pretty smooth, and I feel pretty pretty, uh, pretty good about how it's gone so far. And 
uh, it's been a fun team to be a part of. So um, I'm just kind of trying to do my part and and, uh, and come to the park every day and, and uh, help the team win. And, and I think that that's been the mindset of all the guys, and which is kind of the, the key to our hot start. New York Yankee Matt Holiday joining us. I'm out back in April. You recorded your 2000th career hit last Wednesday. You hit a three-run shot for your 300th career home run as an athlete. I get that it's always about the next game, the next challenge, but those are both really big numbers. Have you had a moment to think about what they mean? Yeah, you know, I, I uh, my my little boy, my boys, you know, my kids, uh, my uh, my two oldest kept saying, "Hey, Dad." Uh, tonight would be a good night for the 300th home run, you know, right. every night. So they kept reminding me when I was on 299, hey, hey, uh, you know, this would be a good night for 300. Uh, so it's been cool, you know, to get to kind of uh, do those things with them old enough to where they can they kind of understand it and appreciate it. And um, if you'd have told me when I was a little kid that I'd get a chance to play in the major leagues for 14 years and, and, and get 2,000 hits and 300 homers, uh, I probably wouldn't have believed it and I'd have been pretty thrilled about it. So. Uh, I'm pretty proud of 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 the uh, of those numbers. Those are pretty cool numbers. And then you know, people tell you, hey, you know, you're only one of 93 people, you know, or whatever those numbers are. And and to think about that, and and how long, and how many great players have played Major League Baseball to get a chance to to be in the company of of. Uh, of people like that is uh, is something that, that uh, I'm pretty excited about. Yankee Matt Holiday joins us for a couple of more moments. It was back in spring training where he said that this year's Yankee team reminded you a little bit of the 07 Rockies team, and that was just a magical year. You hit 340, you drove in 137 runs, the team went to the World Series. So in what regard, how does this year's Yankee team remind you of those Rockies? Well, I, I think that, that the young players, um, kind of like we were young players at the time, were kind of coming into their own um, at the right time, at the same time, and I think a lot of the young guys on this team, some of them already established, you know, with Castro and, and Didi Gregorius, and um, but there's some young guys like Aaron Judge and, and Sanchez and, and Greg Bird, and um, that are really, I think, going to come into their own and, and kind of hit the. This is kind of their uh, um, the, the, the part of their career where they're really going to start to take off, and um, so we have a good mix of veterans and young guys, which I think we had in '07 and. Um, the young guys provide a lot of energy and excitement, and the older guys provide some, uh, you know, some veteran leadership. And, and maybe you know, when things are, you know, we're going to hit a stretch where we don't play great, and um, you know, that's that's our job to make sure the young guys understand and um, keep grinding. And and uh, and so I, I think it's a good mix, and then I think that um, that this young group of guys has tons of talent, and I think they're all they're all very serious about their careers and they take things very seriously and, and uh, it's very important to them. And, uh, and I think that's a good rest. You remember that M bomb, the M bomb last week, you know, how bad or how mad you have to be to drop an N bomb on somebody. You remember what I'm talking about? Caleb Joseph of the Oreos who went next level with an M bomb. I have never heard a major athlete in a major sport go with an M bomb the way he did. But this guy had it locked and loaded, and at some point you knew it was coming out. It's malarkey, so it is. It's a bunch of malarkey. Malarkey. That's what that is, a bunch of malarkey. Well, I'll tell you what, you take that M-bomb, and then you take that M-bomb, and you go to the next level with it. Because if there's something even more powerful, more extreme, more intense than an M-bomb, it's a K-bomb. And KD and Steph nearly vaporized when a reporter hit both of them with a K-bomb. Hold up, Albie. 
Not an athlete dropping a K-bomb on somebody. A reporter dropping a K-bomb on two future Hall of Famers. Kevin, uh, what happened on that Gobert kerfuffle at, at the end? That is a word right there. What'd you say? Kerfuffle. Good job, bro. That is strong. Uh, it's just basketball, you know? Wait, wait. Kerfuffle? Kerfuffle? What happened on that Gobert kerfuffle in the end? Kevin, uh, what happened on that Gobert kerfuffle at, at the end? That is a word right there. What'd you say? Kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. Good job, bro. That is strong. Uh, it's just basketball. That's incredible. So the reporter says, Kevin, what happened on that Gobert kerfuffle at the end there? Steph immediately jumps in with, that's a word right there. That's a word right there is not as good as man's game, but it's close. Hey, Jim Rome. Hey, Steph Curry. Hey, Jim Rome. That's a kerfuffle right there, Steph Curry. Katie said, what'd you say? Kerfluffle? The reporter corrects him and says, kerfuffle. Katie just responds with, good job, bro. Kevin, uh, what happened on that Gobert kerfuffle at, at the end? That is a word right there. <laughs> what you say? Kerfuffle. Good job, bro. That is strong. Uh, it's just basketball. It's such a great exchange. The problem with that is now every reporter is going to try and one-up these guys. You know, these guys, all they ever want is something they have not heard before. And judging from the reaction, you know they had not heard kerfuffle before. The only thing missing from that was Steph dropping in a man's game right in the middle of the exchange. Kevin, uh, what happened on that Gobert kerfuffle at, at the end? That is well, a did. word right there. Damn, I didn't even pick up on that the first time. He did. I cannot believe that. Steph hit him with a man's game. Steph hit that reporter with a man's game. I don't know how I missed that the first couple of times. Check that out. Kevin, uh, what happened on that Gobert kerfuffle man's at the end? Game. That is a word right there. <laughs> Good job, bro. That is strong. That reporter may have hit Steph and KD with the toughest check of the playoffs because adjusting to a kerfuffle bomb is a lot more challenging than anything that the Utah Jazz threw at Durant, who, as I mentioned, finally did show up. And, you know, he didn't have to show up anytime before. He did actually show up. But he did finally. He dropped 38 and 13 on Utah. He carried the load. His Golden State won by double digits. Even with Steph cooling down and Clay scoring just six. And Draymond missing all three of his three point attempts. On a night where Steph cools down, Clay scores just six, Draymond can't make a three, it still doesn't matter. They win easily. And they do so on the road. But. What about that kerfuffle? Kevin, uh, what happened on that Gobert kerfuffle at, at the end? That is game. a word right there. <laughs> what you say? Kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. Good job, bro. That is strong. He said, he said kerfuffle. And then he corrects him. Kerfuffle. Yeah, either way, triple word score that thing. And maybe the only thing anybody from Salt Lake threw at Golden State that they could not handle in the series Because Kevin Durant is heating up. And now that he is, the Warriors are more dangerous than they've ever been. Bring on the trilogy. I just hope that's not now a thing. Where every reporter is now looking to one-up that guy with a word like that. Kerfuffle. Xavier Coleman is my guest. Xavier, great to have you on. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. It's really good to have you. All right, you've got this amazing story, which I'll get to in a moment, but I know it's early on, but so far, what's it been like being a member of the New York Jets? 
Uh, it's been great. Uh, we just had rookie mini camp uh, this last weekend. I got back to Portland last night, uh, and it was it was uh, surreal being there. But um, I really can't explain my feelings towards it. But it was fun. I mean, I love the coaching staff. Coach Bowles is a great guy. Uh, coach Wilson, my DB coach, and Coach McCutcheon, uh, both awesome. So I had a great first experience over there being being in uh, Jersey. Xavier Coleman joining us. I would imagine it's tough to explain, but I think if we go back and we talk about your story, it might explain itself. For instance, when you were 14 years old, you were in school, you fainted in class, and then a few days later, you fainted in the shower, you went to the doctor, and were ultimately diagnosed with a serious heart condition, and you were just 14. What was the condition, and what was your reaction when they told you about it? Yeah, the the condition was a bicuspid aortic valve, which simply meant my heart was regurgitating blood, uh, and it was getting bigger to the point where I couldn't take any serious contact to the chest. Uh, and my reaction, I kind of told a guy a couple of days ago, was similar to the whole uh, Friday Night Lights movie where Movie Mouse you know, receives the news he can't play, and you're tearing up the, the doctor's room, and I was kind of you know tearing off pillows and the blanket and tearing stuff off the wall. So uh, <laughs> I had a very similar reaction to him in that movie. All right, so what they told you, that's a great analogy. And what they told you was you couldn't play non-contact sport, or you could play non-contact sports, and you probably wouldn't need surgery until you were in your 30s or 40s, but you could not mm. play football, and you shared your reaction. So you're playing basketball, and you're running track, and you're going to see a heart doctor for regular checkups. And then in June of 2012, tests revealed that there was a problem and that they were going to have to perform surgery. According to ESPN, the cardiologist told you there was a 95% chance you'd be able to fix it and that you might be able to play football again. What was your reaction when you heard that? Uh, I didn't want to get my hopes up too high. But, I mean, clearly it was in my head the whole time uh, in the process going up to surgery and then after. I mean, right when I woke up coming out of surgery, that's the first thing I asked him. I said, so is it fixed? Uh, and then he said, yes, that was, that was the first uh, sense of relief. And then after I kind of came to, I realized, hey, if it's fixed, I can play. I can play ball again. So that was kind of my second thought after that. Xavier Coleman joining us. Your mother said, Christine said, it was the scariest time of my life. But as, she, as you just pointed out, she said that when you woke up and you came to and you asked that question and got that response, there was your first glimmer in your eye that she had seen in a while. After the surgery, you weren't allowed to do anything physical for a few months. So what were you able to do? And then what was it like when you realized that you could start working out again and you could start to attack this goal? Yeah, I mean, I always say those three months were the worst of my life. I mean, I've been active my whole life. So uh, when I was bedridden, I was just sitting on the couch for three months doing nothing. Uh, but I give a lot of credit to, to my support, my family, my coaches, my high school, because they were, you know, keeping me company through the whole time. So uh, when the time came around when I could work out, I was I was itching at it. But once we got a week away when they were like, hey, you can work out in about a week here, I was ready, I was ready. But once that date hit, I hit it hard. I mean, I went to try to do stuff that I was doing, you know, pre-heart surgery, and it was just not happening. But uh, I, I got after it the day I was cleared. Now, you worked your way back into shape. You were allowed to play the final two games of the regular season. What was it like when you came back out onto the field for the first time? Yeah, I, and it was senior night as well. So that, it was just probably one of the most special nights of my life. Uh, running out on the field, it was kind of, I was numb. That's how I've explained it to people. Like, it was, it was a numb feeling. I, I wanted to be able to explain how I felt, but it was just numb. There was so much going on. You know, I had so much family there. It was... It was something that I never thought was going to happen again. Uh, so it was really just a numb feeling. I didn't really know how to feel. I was happy. I was anxious. I was nervous. I was all of the above. But uh, once the game started going, it was just, you know, time to go in attack mode.
New York Jets cornerback Xavier Coleman telling his story. So you play in front of friends and family, in fact, 40 friends and family, and in that very first game back, you pick off a pass, you return it for a TD, and you've got all your friends and family in the stands. What do you remember about that specific play and the emotions that came with it? Yeah, I remember uh, seeing Thomas Steiner, who was the running back of Oregon, break. Uh, and it was a new quarterback because the old one had gotten hurt uh, like the quarter before, so I knew he was targeting him. So I broke on it, I picked it, and I just remember, I don't even really remember running, but once I once I crossed the, uh, the goal line, I just remember looking back and holding my hands up, like, did that really just happen? I think that was my celebration. Like, I just held my hands up to my side, like, I cannot believe that just happened. Uh, and then after, I didn't know whether to cry, to scream. I looked up to the stands, and my, my family's going crazy, and I see my mom crying. Um, and, and that was the best, the happiest moment I've ever had in my life up to this point. Uh, just because of everything I've been through, and then my first time getting back, that happening. Uh, it was unexplainable. It's incredible. It's almost too good to be true. Now, the fact yeah, is, really. I mean, you kept on playing. You could have kept on playing basketball and running track. So what was it about football that made you work so hard to get back out there? Yeah, well, football, I mean, even through middle school, football was always a sport uh, I wanted to play. I've been an emotional athlete. Uh, that's kind of how I explain myself uh, in all competitions. So whenever I get there, you know, and, and football is that sport where you can play with your emotion. You know, if I get mad, I can use that emotion to go and physically take it out on someone or make a player. So I've always just had a passion for the game. So once I got cleared to play football again, that's when I was, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind. That's what I wanted to do. New York Jets corner, Xavier Coleman joining us. Now, you played your final two regular season games, your senior mm-hmm. year, and then four games in the playoffs, so there wasn't a whole lot of tape, but Portland State offered you a scholarship. What did it mean to you, and then what was your time like at Portland State? Uh, yeah, once once Coach Burton had sat me down uh, in, in that restaurant hotel that morning and offered me a scholarship, it meant the absolute world to me. I mean, it was it was a partial scholarship, but anything, just anything at that point, I was going to take because all I wanted to do was play football. Uh, and then from that point on, I, I was going to school to work, and Portland State was so good to me all four years. I had a great time. I mean, I'm right in the city. I'm a city guy. I got to be downtown Portland. I'm from here, so I had all my family here. I couldn't have asked for a better situation, honestly. Now, last season against Washington, as an example, you covered John Ross. He ran that 4-2-2 mm-hmm. at the Combine. What do you remember about the matchup, and then how'd that go for you? Yeah, uh, I was very excited about that matchup. I mean, there was a lot of hype around him coming in. Uh, but with guys like that, I just focused on my technique. I mean, I don't think he had many of any catches or yards on me. Uh, granted, the score did get quite out of hand fast, but uh, playing him was fun. I mean, when you're playing a big name like that, you want to make plays. I think I played well against him. I just focused on my technique and covered him up a majority of the time, and it was, it was a good time being there. That stadium is, is crazy. Xavier Coleman, Jets Corner, joins us for a few more moments. So then you have an excellent pro day, and then after the draft, you have a number of teams reaching out to sign you. So what was it about the Jets that made you feel like that was the right place for you? Yeah, well, um, I had talked to some people from the Jets after pro day, Brian Shields, uh, some scouts, uh, and I just liked the vibe I was getting. And then uh, when I did some research on uh, the coaching staff there now and the defense that they like to play, I just knew it was a fit for me. I mean, I'm a cover corner I uh, love to press. They play a lot of cover one. They love to, you know, have physical corners. And I'm like, that's where I want to be at. And plus, you know, I get to be over there in Jersey, New York. So uh, I've never been over there before. And it's just, uh, it's been crazy. I was going to say, the whole thing's so mind-blowing, really. I mean, you've gone from open-heart surgery yeah. only a few years back to now playing for a spot in the NFL. How do you explain all this? I, I, I really just can't. I mean, I can't even explain it to myself. When I was in the locker room this weekend, and I'm looking around like, 
I'm I'm in an NFL locker room, you know, and I, and just I can't explain from where I've come. I it was I can't put it into words. When people try to ask me and they say, hey, "How do you feel about this?" It's like I, I just approach everything the same. I mean, I put my head down and I work hard, and it's just worked out for me. You know, I, I just shut up and do what I need to do, and life has has treated me well. That's the only thing I can really say. Everything you know, it's kind of just fallen into place for me, and I just. I've been the guy to shut up and work hard, and, and it's it's been working out. Yeah, I love that. I love two things about that. Number one, that you feel like life has treated you well, when in fact it would seem like you were dealt kind of a tough hand when you had open-heart surgery. And you're saying, no, <laughs> no, it's fine. Life has treated me well. And number two, I put my head down, I keep my mouth shut, I work, and things tend to work out pretty well. So finally, yeah. former teammates have told you that when you get to the NFL, everybody's fast, everybody's strong, everybody is tough. So as you approach this, how much of it's going to be about the mental side of things in terms of knowing what you're supposed to do and simply mm-hmm. being mentally tougher than the other guy? Yeah, I think that's honestly everything. I, I realized, I think why I had a successful college career, actually, is because I realized that in college. I think it was going into my junior year that it was all mental. I mean, I was working out hard and I was doing all the right stuff, but I was not making plays throughout the season. You know, and I was thinking about, oh, I need to be faster here, I need to be faster there. But then when I realized, wait, I need to focus on the technique things, on the mental side of of being prepared for games, you know, going through situation scenarios, that's when I started making plays. So I'm taking that same mindset to the NFL and now knowing that even, you know, more so all the guys are gonna be athletic, all the guys are gonna be strong. I need to to make sure I put that into place every single rep, every single play, every single practice and every single game. Let's go to Ken in Sacramento. Ken, good morning, what's up? Hey Romy, thanks for taking my call. Romy, I think it's time for us to stop tiptoeing around the subject and just come to it and let it be known. LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. Yeah, I said it. There's people out there spitting out their milk and soda right now talking about how can you blaspheme Michael Jordan. Well, let's take a closer look. I think Jordan will always be the most accomplished player, but if you want to look at accomplishment, his six will always be second to Bill Russell's 11. And Bill Russell was the primary reason that the Celtics won 11 championships. So when you look at accomplishments, there's no doubt about it. Michael, six-time MVP, six-time finals MVP. But quite frankly, Jim, let's take a look at what is going on here, okay? We have never seen a physical specimen like LeBron James. LeBron James for lack of a better word, is Carl Malone. You have, you have a guy with Carl Malone's body who can guard all five positions. As great as Michael was, Michael guards your one, two, and three. And maybe if your four was very small, nobody has come along like LeBron. I saw LeBron at the apex of his defensive prowess get down and stop Derrick Rose, who at the time was the MVP of the league, the quickest guard in the league. LeBron shut him down. LeBron guarded the best point guard in the league and could do that. LeBron could guard your one, your two, your three, your four, and probably, if he put his mind to it, your five. And that's just his physical characteristics. When you take a look at this man's game, what he has done, he's always been criticized for not being a smarter or not being a scorer, but he's never been a selfish player. He has always made the correct basketball play. And if that means he'll get criticized for passing the ball in the last five seconds, he'll do that if it's the best basketball play. There comes a time when you look at the great players where the mental 
uh, uh, connects with the physical, and when they reach that that level, there's no stop them. Bird reached it in '86. Magic reached it in '87. Jordan reached it in '90. Right now, at his apex, there is nothing LeBron James can do on a basketball court. And let's break it down even further. Take a six-six, two hundred and ten-pound Michael Jordan. Put him on a six-nine, two hundred and sixty-pound LeBron James. What is Michael going to do with LeBron? Whereas LeBron can stop out on the court and and play with Michael on the perimeter, walk Michael down on the block, there's nothing Michael can do. We need to take a look at what the facts are. We have a tendency to look at the, at the past and say nothing can surpass it. But what LeBron James is doing right now at the level he's doing it, quite frankly, no one has ever done it before. And as much as Michael has accomplished on the basketball court, there's never been a greater athlete. Let me jump in there, Ken, because I know if I let you go, you'll go another five minutes and you can probably justify it. That's a really good phone call. Clones, what up? Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you. I appreciate that you're going to hit subscribe. I really appreciate that you'll tell a friend. And most of all, I appreciate that you trust this here podcast. Check back tomorrow for more Daily Jungle. We will see you right then. Karma.